Well, Project Church, it's an honour uh, to once again come and open God's Word with you, albeit for one last time. Uh, just a heads up, last week we started our holiday mini-series opening up in the book of Psalms and we worked our way through Psalm chapter 2, which I have to say was an absolute joy uh, to preach. Uh, however, this, this week I had a bit of an unfortunate medical situation I had to respond to in our family uh, back on the Gold Coast. So we're going to be turning elsewhere in Scripture this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And I want to begin this morning by reading verses 24 through 29. This is the conclusion to Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This is what it says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I'm sure you've learnt over the last two and a half years, one of my most treasured pastimes is playing and watching the heaven-sent sport that is Australian rules football. It's a sport that took up a large percentage of my early 20s. Uh, it's a sport that has captured the hearts and lives of the entire O'Donnell family, though I'm still working on Alice. And if my body were not so orthopedically challenged, I'd still be playing Aussie rules today. And like a lot of sports, I'm sure, AFL is a sport where coaches are particularly renowned for giving some pretty full-on pre-game motivational speeches. Let's just say I've been on the end of a few of these myself, and over time I've recognised certain patterns. They're usually delivered at an unnecessarily high volume. They're generally not lacking in the use of expletives. And the occasional cheesy movie quote has been known to surface in the midst of the address. Uh, In fact, before the under-16s grand final that I played in back in 2004, uh, my coach thought it would be a really good idea pre-game for us all to sit down together and watch the movie Eight Mile so that we would take the field with a go-getter attitude that this game was our one shot, our one opportunity to seize everything we ever wanted in one moment and that we should capture it and not let it slip in the famous words of Eminem. Please don't hear that as an endorsement. That's not the point I'm making. But what's fascinating and somewhat perplexing about these speeches is that despite the enthusiasm with which they're often delivered, despite the intricate tapestry of the game plan that the coach has articulated, despite the footy dad cheers and the team song that roar as you run out onto the field, and despite the fact that most of the pre-game speech is just a, a rehash of everything the coach has been saying all week at training anyway... Somehow, teams can enter the dressing room at halftime with their tail between their legs because they've categorically failed to execute the game plan. Now, now, technically speaking, everyone on the team has listened to the coach. I mean, they've all nodded their head in agreement when he told them to rush the ball carrier and tackle hard. But by virtue of their lack of execution, there's a sense in which they haven't really listened to him at all. You see, the quality and condition of their listening could really only be measured by their obedience. And as we come to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we find ourselves in somewhat of a similar position. 
Jesus has spent the last three chapters of Matthew's Gospel, 5, 6, and 7, thoroughly articulating the game plan for life in the kingdom. He's taught us how to pray. He's taught us how to fast, how to forgive. He gives us warnings against lust, warnings against retaliation, warnings about being people of our word, exhorting us to love our enemies, on and on and on it goes. But at its conclusion, we must now ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? You see, the Sermon on the Mount was undoubtedly the greatest sermon ever preached. And it is no doubt a cherished devotional volume amongst Christians across the globe. But we need to be reminded this morning that the sermon concludes not with any additional commands, but with one confronting question. How will you respond to it? How will you respond to the teachings of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount? But before we get into the particulars of that response and the different ways that that can play out in our lives, what I want to do this morning is begin by bowling a little bit of a googly uh, for the, all the cricketers in the room. What I want to do is preach this text backwards. I've asked you the question, how will you respond to the Sermon on the Mount? But before we can really answer that question, I think it would be prudent to first consider how the original audience responded to the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at verses 28 and 29 again. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, when you and I read the New Testament, we typically do so with our 21st century glasses on. And unfortunately, it often means that we can miss either the meaning or the mood of a particular text. And when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, the reaction that you and I are supposed to have as we read its content was supposed to have this reaction of astonishment. That was the reaction of the original audience. It says that they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. They were dumbfounded by what he had to say. You see, most of the time, your typical first century scribe wouldn't teach with their own authority. But they would teach by citing the authority of others. It was a little bit like how lawyers cite the uh, precedent case law when they're, defining, when they're defending their clients. They're not coming up with anything new as such. They're just citing the work of those who have gone before them. Your Honour, I'd like to cite the 1994 case of O'Donnell versus Reed. That's how lawyers typically argue and that's how scribes taught. They would cite on the authority of other people. They were trained to have exceptional memorization skills. They could recite entire books of the Old Testament completely verbatim. And they were very well versed in the received traditions of respected rabbis who had gone before them. And it was only extremely rarely that they would venture into the category of original thought. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the, uh, the chief feature of their teaching was their endless string of quotations. That's how a scribe would teach in the first century. But then Jesus comes along. And the manner of his teaching was not one of borrowed authority, but one of actual authority. Distinguished uh, New Testament scholar Leon Morris sums it up this way. And yes, I am aware of the irony. After just denouncing the scribe's reliance on secondary sources, I'm about to quote a secondary source. The answer is simple. I'm not as good a teacher as Jesus. I figured that one out a long time ago. I'm perfectly content with my reliance on secondary sources. So I give you Leon Morris. He said it this way. It was the scribal habit to appeal to authority, for it was an age in which originality was not highly prized. It was widely accepted that there had been a golden age early in the history of the race, and since then history had been all downhill. 
those closer to the golden times might be expected to have the rights of it when a, when a dispute arose. There was a widespread respect for age. Thus it was important to cite authorities if one wished to obtain a hearing. But Jesus ignored this scribal commonplace. Where others appealed to authorities, Jesus simply said, I say unto you. Jesus spoke with an abnormal level of authority. But even then, we've really only scratched the surface when it comes to the crowd's astonishment because it wasn't just the manner of his teaching, but the content of his teaching that astonished them. Unapologetically, without hesitation, showing the utmost mastery of the Old Testament scriptures and displaying utter contempt for the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus made some very audacious claims. Claims that John Stott described as staggeringly egocentric. Let's survey a few of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Sorry, what? You're claiming that it's within your scope of practice to determine who gets to access the messianic kingdom. If I'm following you correctly, you're claiming to be the divine judge. Who gives you that right? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. On my account? Mate, who exactly do you think you are? You're just a humble carpenter. Who would persecute me on your account? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Hang on a second. You're claiming to be the solution to the perennial problem that no one in the Old Testament could solve, not even the patriarchs. These are not the words of your garden variety Galilean carpenter in the first century. Jesus was speaking with another level of authority. And to a 21st century audience, it also needs to be said that these are clearly not the words of just a good moral, social and ethical teacher. You see, in liberal scholarship over the last century or so, there's been a little bit of a, an attempt to try and play off the teachings of the apostles over here, over and, against, over and against the teachings of Jesus, to kind of forward this idea that Jesus was just a good moral teacher and it was really just those nasty, dogmatic apostles who added all that theology and atonement stuff in quite, quite um, some time later, decades later perhaps. And to forward their case, they often appeal to the Sermon on the Mount. And they say, see, see, this is all just ethical instruction. Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, give to the poor, and not judge each other. See, Jesus is just a good moral teacher. Even one Hindu professor said that the Jesus of dogma I do not understand, but the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount and the cross I love and am drawn to. But listen, if that's your view, may I say, you seriously need to review your comprehension skills. (laughs) Whoever your English teacher is, they need to be fired because a sober reading of the Sermon on the Mount, especially in its historical context, can lead you to no other conclusion than that Jesus is making several claims to his own deity in these sermons. Listen, Jesus was the greatest, most powerful most earth-shattering, countercultural teacher of all time. He puts any Greek, Renaissance or Enlightenment philosopher to the sword. And the Jews could see it. They were astonished. And in John 7.15, we read that they were particularly baffled at how he managed to teach this way, having never received uh, any formal training himself. 
They said, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus' response was, well, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus was unlike any teacher that the world had ever seen. Alfred Edersheim put it this way. There was no appeal to human authority other than that of the conscience. No subtle logical distinctions, legal niceties, nor clever sayings. Clear, limpid, and crystalline flowed his words from out of the spring of the divine life that was in him. But as we survey the evidence that is available to us in the rest of Matthew's gospel, or really any of the gospel accounts for that matter, we're confronted with the tragic reality that astonishment at Jesus' teaching doesn't necessarily mean bowing your knee to his lordship. Jesus preached this sermon and many others like it to massive crowds for three years and had very few converts. Why? Well, sadly, because it's possible to hear Jesus and be astonished by Jesus without ever being moved to obey Jesus. Astonishment at Jesus' teaching is a great thing. You should be astonished. But we are in serious eternal danger if all we have is astonishment. We need to distinguish between a spellbound response and a saving response. And that's precisely what we're going to cover next. Look again with me at verses 26 and 27. It says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Well, I have a bit of a confession to make. For the last three or four years, I've actually used these two verses as a means to explain my own testimony. For those of you who know me, you'll know that my testimony has often been uh, shared along these lines. Uh, I grew up in a good Christian home. I went to a good Christian school. I I followed the Lord somewhat faithfully in my uh, late teens and early 20s. But then around about the age of 23, I started to rebel. And in the context of my rebellion, I underwent some serious disappointments and some significant suffering. And things in my life weren't playing out the way that I had hoped. And I spent years blaming God for it. But years later, Jesus, the good shepherd, he came and got me. And I realized that my faith was built on theological sand. But I joined a really healthy church on the Gold Coast and my pastor helped me to rebuild the foundations of my faith with some robust reformed theology and by God's grace... Now my faith is built on the rock. Something like that. I've used those two verses to explain my testimony. Now hear me, the thrust of what I've just shared there is true and I'm immensely thankful for what the Lord has done in me. There's only one problem. That's not what the text is saying. I need to find another scripture to explain my testimony because someone who builds their house on the rock is not someone who hears Jesus more accurately. It's someone who does what Jesus says. You see, we can so easily miss what this text is saying because we're often, especially us reform types, we're so over-familiar with the many New Testament scriptures that equate having sound theology with having a sound, sound, solid foundation. And what we end up doing is we confuse the biblical analogies. For example, in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 21, these were Paul's words. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, here's the kicker, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
And most scholars would agree that the foundation that he's referring to here is the scriptures that the apostles and prophets wrote, perhaps the New Testament and Old Testament, respectively. And that the beliefs and practices of the church should be built on the foundation of scripture. Amen to that. Or in Ephesians 4, we read that God gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I know that sounds very similar to Matthew chapter 7, but Matthew chapter 7 is actually saying something really different. Look again at verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine, these sound theological words of Jesus, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The man in this parable has nothing wrong with his hearing. I suspect he's probably sitting on the same pew, in the same church, listening to the same sermons as the wise man in verse 24. And his house is said to be built on sand, not because of any lack in the content that he's listening to, but because of his failure to obey and apply any of what he's heard. Like the crowds who followed Jesus in the first century, this man is stuck in that eternally grim category of mere astonishment and mere listening. But if you pause and think on it for a moment longer, perhaps the most terrifying reality of this word picture that Jesus is giving us is that this foolish man is still building something. It's not as though his lack of obedience means he abandons the hammer altogether. He's still building a house. He just he, he doesn't just put down a beach towel. He's building a house. And it's a house that for the most part looks exactly like the genuine article. It has all the same framework, the same cladding, the same insulation, the same colour bond roof, the same plasterboard sheets, but he never poured a slab. With all his hammer swinging, screw driving and wall painting, it kind of looks like he has his heart postured towards obeying Jesus, but in the final assessment, he isn't interested in obeying him at all. It's the same kind of posture the prophet Ezekiel spoke about in Ezekiel 33. He says, As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, Come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. I've had the privilege of studying a fair bit of church history and one of the most tragic trends that pops up time and time again in the history of the church is phenomenal Christianity, that is Christianity that that exists in name only, to creep into the church and become the norm. I could cite multiple examples of this, but let's just imagine, for example, that you're a young man growing up in 19th century England. You're a reasonably well-behaved Victorian gentleman You had recently graduated from Oxford or Cambridge and you found yourself in need of a job. Well, you could just go and sign off on the 39 Articles, which was the Anglican Confession of Faith, quite an orthodox document. And very quickly, you could become a deacon in your local parish. You had a job. And with time, you could become a curate, a priest or even a bishop, preaching sermons, performing baptisms, 
reading liturgies and overall looking like you were the real deal when in fact you were actually just a counterfeit. I'm sure they were very polite, probably very orthodox, but at the end of the day, if you peered under the bonnet of their heart, it was recalcitrant toward Christ and his teaching. This thought sort of thing used to happen all the time and no doubt it still happens today. As Charles Spurgeon put it, all is not wheat that grows in cornfields and all is not gold that glitters. You see, it's possible for someone to come to Jesus and his teaching and instead of obeying him, they can end up doing one of two things. They can plunge in or they can pick and choose. Plunging in, what does that look like? This is the kind of person who hears the teaching of Christ superficially and without any thought at all starts, quote-unquote, obeying Jesus but doesn't get too far into the bill before they realize they haven't counted the cost and they're not up for it. It's the kind of thing Jesus warns about in Luke 14. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? In his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, John MacArthur warns that this kind of rushed, plunging-in category of response is sadly all too familiar a phenomenon in the modern church. He says that much of modern evangelism is building on the sand. It allows no time for conviction of sin, no opportunity for deep repentance, no chance to understand why we must come to grips with the reality of our lostness, and no occasion for the Holy Spirit to work. The bandwagon is moving, and if you want to jump on, you had better do it. That's plunging in. It feeds on our desire for the instantaneous, and sadly, many have taken the bait and have built their faith without first pouring a slab. But then there's also picking and choosing. This person is the kind who sifts through the teachings of Christ, kind of like items on a dessert menu. Um, Yeah, look, I'll happily have that, but tell the chef not to bring that one out. Not too keen on that one there. Picking and choosing through the commands of Christ. Sometimes this can happen with specific commands. Like Someone might embrace, for example, Jesus' teaching on anger, but then utterly reject his teaching on lust because for them, well, the desires of the flesh have become something of a cherished compass. But then I suspect it can happen more subtly than that. Sometimes it's not a specific command that they retreat from, but rather the implied diagnosis that Jesus' teaching pronounces over you. You might read something like Matthew 6.12 where we're told how to pray and ask the Lord for forgiveness and they're bothered by that because such a command presupposes that they've done something that needs forgiving in the first place and they're uncomfortable with admitting guilt. In the same book by uh, Johnny Mack that I quoted from earlier, he cites uh, a letter to the editor that appeared in an Australian newspaper after a Billy Graham crusade. I shared this about 12 months ago. It says this. After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on television and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. Give me practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of colour or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned." Those are not the words of someone who is poor in spirit and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
Those are the words of someone who is picking and choosing. Jesus goes on to say that not only do counterfeits exist, but that one day they'll be exposed. Look at verse 27 again. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, I must admit, in my own opinion, I think the commentators get a little bit too loose on how they interpret verse 27. I mean, with all respect to them, many years my senior, far more wise, I think they often descend into a fair bit of false allegory. Now, they start to say things like this, oh yeah, well, the, the rain, that means suffering, oh, the floods, they mean temptation, and the winds mean persecution. But I personally don't think you can find that anywhere in the text. God bless you if that's your position, but I just, I just personally don't see it. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there is a reasonable layer of truth to some of that. I mean, if your faith is built on sand, I guarantee that a good dose of suffering or a good dose of temptation or a good dose of persecution would expose your faith for what it is. I can't disagree with that at all. So there's truth to that, if that's how you want to understand the passage. But I am personally convinced that the chief thing that Jesus is referring to when he speaks of this storm is the final eschatological day of judgment that awaits us when Jesus returns in glory. That's the storm. This sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, ends with the threat of judgment. You're probably not going to find that in too many preaching textbooks. Step 12, end sermon with threat of judgment. It's just not there. You see, this storm beating against a house-type language is just textbook Old Testament speak for the wrath and judgment of Almighty God. Look with me to Ezekiel 13, where he condemns the deceitful work of the false prophets. It says, Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. Listen to this. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. That's Matthew 7 language. And when the wall falls, will it not be said of you? Where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Matthew 7 language again, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. Jesus, at the conclusion of this sermon, is warning us about being self-deceived pseudo-Christians who think they're saved but who on the day of judgment will discover that their so-called faith will leave them high and dry like a wreck on a sandbank, a scandal to the church, a byword to the infidel and a misery to himself. J.C. Ryle. Plunging in, picking and choosing, mere astonishment or accurate hearing unaccompanied by obedience. Let me ask you this morning, I have to ask myself, can you trace any of these symptoms in your own heart? Now listen, I didn't come here this morning to hack away at your assurance in a childish, cavalier manner, but as you read the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we should all just pause for a moment 
and allow ourselves some time of reflection to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now listen, you you may not be built on sand. I'm sure that's the case for us. But if you're like me, (laughs) perhaps you've heard and meditated on the teachings of Jesus and realized that there are some parts of your life, some chambers in your hearts, as it were, that perhaps you've mixed some sand into the cement truck, so to speak, and it's affected the quality of the slab. I mean, it can happen subtly. I mean, for example, do you you ever just find yourself analyzing a sermon instead of listening to it? Sadly, I do this all the time. I think this is one of the most hazardous collateral effects of going to Bible college and studying theology. It's that you can find yourself most of the time analyzing sermons rather than listening to them. I can listen to the mechanics of a sermon. Oh, yes, good use of alliteration. Uh, alliteration. Well done, that'll preach. Oh, look at the way he followed the theme of temple to get from the book of Samuel all the way to the coming of Christ. Masterful use of biblical theology. Well done. Oh, and those long pauses, that'll hold a crowd. Wow. I find myself doing that all the time. But I come away without any conviction of sin or any resolve to change the way I operate. It's why James says in chapter 1 of his book, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Here's the kicker, deceiving yourselves. Listen, you can, you can study first century oath making by reading sections of the Jerusalem Talmud until you're blue in the face. I did that one Friday afternoon. But when the rubber meets the road, can, can people save you that you're a man of your word? Is your yes, yes, and your no, no. You can spend all your time working out your position on the sacrament of baptism. Are you going to submerge the adults or sprinkle the infants? I'd encourage the former. But at the end of the day, there comes a point where you actually have to go and baptize the nations. You have to do something. Otherwise, it's just sand. John Stott said it this way. In applying this teaching to ourselves, we need to consider that the Bible is a dangerous book to read. And that the church is a dangerous society to join. For in reading the Bible, we hear the words of Christ. And in joining the church, we say we believe in Christ. As a result, we belong to the company described by Jesus as both hearing his teaching and calling him Lord. Our membership, therefore, lays upon us the serious responsibility of ensuring that what we know and what we say is translated into what we do. Look with me again at verses 24 and 25. I said I was going to preach this backwards. These are the opening verses. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Okay, Jaden, you've convinced me. Um, I want to build my house on the rock. I don't want my house to fall on the day of judgment. I want to obey, obey all that Jesus has commanded. Listen, that is awesome. That is the perfect response to the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Christ. There's just one problem. You can't. You can't obey all that Jesus has commanded. Now, when I say you can't, what I'm not affirming is a bit of an old school view that was prevalent last century that said that the Sermon on the Mount and the ethics therein were just the ethical standards for the kingdom of God in the future, that we don't need to worry about them in the here and now. That's for a future millennial reign of Christ. So don't worry about the ethical commands of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not saying that at all because personally I think that's an absurd view. 
When I say that you can't obey all that Jesus has commanded, I'm simply recognizing that one of the chief functions of the Sermon on the Mount is to level you. And if you're going to have a faith that is built upon the rock, you need to be comfortable with the fact that this sermon, morally speaking, levels you. It levels us all. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, In this sermon, our Lord condemns once and forever all trust in human endeavor and natural ability in the matter of salvation. Levels it to the ground. We may want to obey all that Jesus commands, but we first need to realize that his commandments are there largely to function as a yardstick that exposes our moral failure and throws us upon the mercies of Christ. You and I cannot save ourselves by perfectly obeying the law of Christ. Can't happen. Paul said, by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if we put our trust in Jesus, the one who gave us the law, the one who perfectly obeyed it in our place, and the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for the many ways in which we've failed to live up to it, if we believe in that, we will be saved. Jesus isn't saying that if we do what he says, we'll be saved. But he is saying that if we are truly saved, we'll do what he says. And when you truly believe the good news of the gospel and you undergo what Titus chapter 3 calls the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, you can, with his help, be empowered to obey the law of Christ. You won't do it perfectly, but in comparison to your old life before Christ, it will not be a chore. It will be the delight of your heart to obey him. Why doesn't the band come and join me? Jesus said in John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Or in the poetic words of John Newton, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And that in your word you have disclosed to us the greatest sermon ever preached by none other than the Lord Jesus himself whose teaching was so powerful, so astonishing, it left people dumbfounded. They didn't have a category for it. And we thank you for your honesty, Lord. You have not made the pathway of salvation ambiguous. You've made it clear. Lord, as we look upon the teachings of Christ, it truly does level us. We can't love our enemies the way you did. Our hearts are prone to wander into lust, retaliation, anger, many things. And so, Lord, it throws us upon the mercies of Christ found in the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that you perfectly lived out the law of God. That you died the death that we all deserve to die in our place for our sin and that you rose again, that we might be raised in newness of life, united to you. And now that we are infilled with your spirit, we can, with your help, slowly but surely, two steps forward, one step back, grow in our obedience to Christ. 
Lord God, may we treasure the Sermon on the Mount. And may we soberly consider its conclusion and ask ourselves, upon which are we built? Rock or sand? Father, would you bring to light our hearts this morning and throw us all upon the mercies of Christ in the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.